0: Alright, let's jump in. Guilt and repentance. If you're going to do any kind of discipleship or counseling, and I hope you're starting to catch a theme here, that there is not some big wall dividing discipleship and counseling. And if we could break down that wall and more and more and more and more of God's people and the church of Jesus Christ could think that way, I think we would be so much more effective. Because I don't find churches that fight us on discipleship. Should we do... Do discipleship and come alongside people and show them how to live and walk with Jesus. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But for so many years, decades even, there was a wall up that said you can't cross that wall. We don't know what we're doing over here. We'll just mess people up. And it has not been helpful because it's caused the church to look like, As long as you don't have a problem, we can help you. As soon as you have a problem, we don't know what to say. And so then you're preaching big God sermons on Sundays, singing great big God hymns and choruses. But when real stuff happens, the answer from the local church so often was, oh, we don't get into that. Oh, we don't deal with that. Oh, we don't. And here's some good news. I hope this doesn't offend you if you are in that field of social services or counseling. But surely you would be willing to recognize this to some degree. It's been going on long enough like this now that I would say to you, I don't think there's a real danger you're going to mess people up. They're really messed up. They're really messed up. And so often when they're over here without biblical approaches to it, they're not getting better. They're getting worse. And they're losing heart and they're losing hope. So it's time for the church of Jesus Christ. It is work and we do need to, to prepare for it and say, well, how would we help these people? But that's what a conference like this is about. How would we help these people? Do you think God, in his goodness and mercy and wisdom and love, would say, I'm just going to tell you what to do over here. But over here, my word has nothing to offer. Because as broken sinners who sin and are sinned against, here's where we live so often, right over here. And his word tells us in Second Peter, he's given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. So it's not like there's, there's nothing that God's word says over here. So I'm still very excited. Be encouraged if you're wondering, but does it really, do you see people get help? Yes. Yes, I'm 30 years into this now. And yes, we see people get help. It's so encouraging. This past weekend in, the, in one of my sessions... It's such a joy. Listen to me. It's a thrill to teach a Sunday school lesson have a sense that the Holy Spirit's helping you. And someone says, oh, I learned so, so much. I'll tell you what is more thrilling. When there's a marriage that is this close to not being a marriage and the kids are going to be impacted, one more, one more loss for the kingdom. Because these are two people that say they're Christians. And you begin to see them get traction. You begin to see them relate to each other differently. You begin to see them forgive each other. You begin to see the enemy pushed back and oneness be. There is such joy. I left Tuesday night exhausted. It was. Here's what I'm terrible at, and this probably wouldn't surprise you. My sessions are never 60 minutes. Because I'm trying to build involvement and listen and, you know. uh, So it's like, you'll love this. Two hours and 15 minutes later... I was exhausted, but oh my goodness, I went home happy. And Vicky's like, hey, how was your day? Great, great. You, you get a front row seat, in a way, to see the theater of God's grace and mercy and the power of his word. I went home very tired, but very happy. In a different kind of way than what happens to me on Sunday. I usually go home happy on Sunday too. I love preaching God's word. Unless I feel like it was a dud. But usually I'm excited. Even if nobody else is. I'm excited. But with counseling, it's different. You're right at close range with real people. You saw what it looked like when they came in. You heard what they were saying. You heard the no hope. And then when you begin to see. And listen to me. This wasn't, I've met with them 27 times. This was session six. Session six. And I was like, oh my goodness. God, thank you. Thank you. So as you counsel or disciple, you're going to have to understand what to do with guilt and repentance. And if counseling is really all about change, it's not a Bible study. It's about change. You want them to be different at the end of this. Something was wrong or they wouldn't have come in then repentance has to be at the heart of it. Repentance has to be at the heart of any kind of change. So let's talk about this some, particularly as you think about the differences between what we have to offer as biblical counselors and what the world is trying to do. What are some of the foundational concepts? Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the foundational concepts regarding guilt and repentance. Well, the secular counselor is faced with a real dilemma. Think about this. The secular counselor is faced with a real dilemma because what do you do with guilt and shame? It's often associated, always, I shouldn't say often, it's always associated with some aspect of not measuring up to a particular standard. But in our culture today, if there is no standard, which often that's the deal, there's not. What do you do? Who decides the particular standard and deviation from it? Even like this. This is why I think so often secular counseling lasts so long. They don't know really what they're shooting. How do you know when you're done? What does change look like? Changed into what? Where, so if you wipe out standards, then you really struggle to know what's our goal in this counseling. Now usually the goal turns out to be help them feel better. And that's why I think so often now it has become a fart, pharma, fart, no, no, pharma, ooh, hello, pharmaceutical industry because drugs can help you feel better fast. Again, let me put a caveat here. I am not saying it's a sin to take any kind of psychotropic drugs. I'm grateful for what they've done. In some cases, people are so non-functional and feel so horrible, you can't even hardly talk to them. So if it lifts them enough... For you to be able to talk and for them to function, praise God. But it's almost never the total answer, right? You think about Einstein's definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. If they keep thinking what they've been thinking, wanting what they're wanting, connecting the dots the way they've been connecting the dots, they're going to keep feeling bad. And what happens is the medicine has to be upped. It has to be upped, and then that one doesn't, doesn't keep working, so they try another one, but there's a side effect, and then you take a medicine to counter the side effect from that, and after a while, it's just like, oh my, oh my, what about the heart, what about the heart? But see, they struggle to really come up with what's our goal, whereas us, for us, if I have someone who's an unbeliever, my first goal is to lead them to Christ. Oh my goodness, it's a game changer, Right? It's a game changer to know Jesus. One of the reasons I went home so happy on Tuesday was not just the counseling session. I had a session the hour before that where a young man, 23 years old, had come up to me three Sundays ago after I preached from Ephesians 6 just weeping. I couldn't even tell what he was saying. But all I could catch was I've hit the bottom, and I thought I heard something good that God has done something in his life. This is good. I said, all right, let's get together. Let's get, and he wanted to know, what now? What now? How do I pray? How do I, how do I, how do I? So the hour before this, count, this couple that I met with, I heard, I kid you not, this young man talked nonstop for one hour. I just said, uh-huh. He was so excited. He was so excited. A lot. This is somebody who was brilliant. He had a top job in Cincinnati where he was managing a billion dollars, and he's only twenty three. It was it was it was incredible to listen to him because he's got nothing now. He lost that job, but he, he's not bitter. He never. He just kept saying, "I was so proud. I was so proud. I was so full of myself. I was. I was. I was." And then as his story went on, it just got worse and worse. But he'd say, "But God knew. But God knew that's what it would take. But God knew. But God knew. But God." Knew, but God... And that Sunday he was weeping, I, I said, oh, go by the, the Praying Life by Paul Miller because he said, how do I pray? He'd already read it. He read it in one day. He sends me an email without me even emailing him saying, now if God's got a hold of your life, you should tithe. I'm not going to do that. He emails me and says, what about giving? What about tithing? I don't understand tithing. Explain tithing to me. I've never given, but now I have this little piddly job, but I want to tithe from that. And then I want to serve. Where should I serve? It's like, that's very exciting. When God gets a hold of somebody, I wasn't having to say, oh, you should serve. Oh, you should give. Oh, you should pray. He was so alive in the Lord. That's always a joy to see. New life in Christ. So I had an hour of new life in Christ. And then in and then two hours and 15 minutes of thinking, something's changing here. Great joy. Because the goal is lead them to Christ and then help them. More and more to live to please Him and to be conformed into His image. So we have a goal. We know what what the end game is for biblical counseling at any point. That's different than the world so often. Because the perceived guilt of an individual is based almost always upon a particular standard. And it can be dealt with in a number of different ways. So when people come in for secular counseling, talking of guilt and feeling bad and shame... There are some very unbiblical ways to deal with it. You can just simply go the route of just stop doing that. Stop it. Which sometimes is what we get criticized for as biblical counselors. And I hope at third weekend now you really understand that is not what we're doing. Somebody out there might be doing that. But biblical counseling is not find something someone's doing wrong, match it with a Bible verse that says don't do that, and scream that verse at them. You know? That's not what we're doing. You want to ask questions to figure out why do you keep doing that. Sure, here's a verse that says don't do that. And many times if they're a believer, they don't want to do it, but they keep doing it. They're in Romans 7. The good that I want to do, I don't do. The very thing I say I won't do, I keep doing. Oh, who will deliver me? We're trying to help them to get to the heart to understand why do I do what I do? Why do I want what I want? What am I treasuring, prizing, Worshiping, where have I built an altar? Where am I misunderstanding what life is actually all about? It's not just stop doing that. And that's what I, that's what I talk about in the Gospel Treason book that just rocked my world, changed my life. Changed my life at, wow, uh, probably 30 years old. Grew up in the church when someone helped me understand. People had said, well, stop doing that in your marriage and start doing more. It didn't work. Until he helped me to see, oh, what is it that I'm living for, prizing, chasing after, building my world around. You can just shift responsibility for it, saying your upbringing made you this way. And again, don't hear more than what we're saying. Is the way you were brought up and what you've been through and how you might have been sinned against by someone, is that significant at all? Absolutely So we are not people sitting there saying, oh, whoa, whoa, you're talking about your past again. Shut up. It doesn't matter at all. Start with the day, and here's a verse. We listen. Sometimes I spend two, three sessions listening to someone's story, folks. Because get this. Get this, biblical counselors. Biblical counseling is not just us talking all the time. Until someone is convinced... I think I had a session with you, Key Elements 3 and 4, where we talked about give hope and show compassion. Until they're convinced that I've really heard them and care, I can't get a foot in their world to pivot towards solutions and hope. If you too quickly just think, we don't need to know all that. Here's what we are saying. That doesn't determine your identity and your future. That's what's different did it influence you? Absolutely. Has it shaped you to some degree? Absolutely. Is it part of how you think now? Absolutely. And sometimes that thinking needs to be renewed. It's huge, but it is not determinative. It's one of the biggest influences. But now here we go. How should you think? How should you respond? Desensitizing to you it is, to you too, it is another option. Just continue doing it until you feel no shame. That was Freud's answer. If anybody was feeling bad about something, I'm committing adultery and I actually feel bad about it. Well, your parents or the church or a teacher or somebody held up a standard and taught you that, but they shouldn't have. And one of the best ways to get over that is just keep doing it until you don't feel bad. And here's what's scary, folks. Will that work? Sadly, the answer is yes. Could you keep doing it till you don't feel bad anymore? The Bible has a word for it. It, call, it talks about searing your conscience. Searing it. That's not a good place to arrive at. You want your conscience to be sensitive, and there's a reason that someone feels bad about it. It's because you're created in the image of God, and His law, Romans chapter 2 says, is not just outside written on a piece of paper, it's on your heart. And so you have this sense. Of right and wrong. Even before you are born again. Just being in the image of God. You could mask it. Just take these pills and help you feel better. I already touched on that. You could excuse it. You're genetically prone to this. And even that folks. I don't know where things are going to be headed on same sex attraction etc. Especially in that whole area. Even if. They do discover a gay or homosexual gene. Which. News alert. They have not yet. They keep trying, but they have not. Let's say they do. I'm still not going to back off of God's word. All that means to me, right, is we're being born, all of us, into a broken world. Things are not as they were originally designed. And so, just like my body, some people are born and their kidney doesn't quite work. And something else doesn't quite work. And I've got... Well, you could have something like that because we're born sinners and we still all need. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. It doesn't matter what your deal is or why you do it. The answer is, wait a minute, what does God's word say? What does God's word say? What does God's... And I have to bring whatever it is I'm feeling and thinking back under submission to God's word. I hope this doesn't sound insensitive, but that's why I'm not that sympathetic to those who would say, oh, but... But they've always felt this way and thought this way. And so how can it be wrong? Hope this doesn't offend you ladies. But I don't know that. I I don't know a lot of guys that just were like, "From, from the moment I hit puberty, I wanted to be faithful to one woman. Let me help you here. No. I wanted to have sex as often as possible with as many people as possible. What's that? Sin. Only because of God's word would we ever have thought, you're kidding me. Find one and don't have sex until you find the one and you commit and you marry and then only have sex with that one. God says, "Mm-hmm," but I'm not feeling that. That's not my, yeah, it doesn't matter what you're feeling. Here's what God's word says. Does that make sense? Now, there may be some guys, I don't want to throw all the guys under the bus, that it's, it's all of us are in a position of having to say, wait a minute. It's not what I feel, what I would think, what I desire, what are my natural inclinations That's why he gave us his word. So much of his word is like radically upside down different than we would have concluded. Just justifying and saying that's not wrong. But there is an absolute standard that results in true guilt. There is an absolute standard that results in true guilt. So all the world's attempts to erase guilt and shame are vain like the daily sacrifices that we saw in the Old Testament that could never truly, truly wash away sins. So what's the theological reality about guilt? Those are some of the final foundational concepts that we're all wrestling with as we make decisions about how we're going to handle this. So what are some of the theological realities? Well, the presence of guilt separates humanity from being in the presence of God. Our guilt is real... All of us fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And Isaiah 59 says, your sins have separated you from your God. Our sin problem is what leaves us accountable and guilty before a holy God. Let's get a definition of guilt. So here's a simple definition of guilt. Judicial liability or culpability for failure to meet The standards of God's righteousness. Judicial liability or culpability for failure to meet the standards of God's righteousness. The Hebrew word or verb fundamentally refers to the guilt, responsibility, or culpability the person bears for some offense. And here's what you see from Scripture regarding guilt. The offense is first and foremost always against God doesn't matter who you sinned against. That's why you'll have that, what might seem like a confusing passage at points in Psalm 51. The great go-to passage on confession, right? It's David after his adultery, after he's been confronted. But he says something that sounds odd. Against who? You and you only have I sinned. Now, David wasn't so ignorant as to think, no, I didn't sin against my wife I didn't sin against Bathsheba I didn't get sin against her husband I didn't sin against the nation he knows he sinned against all that that's why it's such a mess but he has an awareness as God granted him repentance that oh my goodness first and foremost beyond it I'm a child of God God has been so good to me God had revealed so many good things to me I had a responsibility to lead this nation. I had a responsibility to put on display that God is more satisfying than what my flesh wants. I failed in all of that against you. You, I have sinned. And note the guilt is not primarily a bad feeling. You may have a bad feeling. So just like the Bible teaches, love is not just a feeling. Don't hear me saying there's no feelings associated with it. But the Bible teaches us that love is, is giving to the needs of another, expecting nothing in return. You can feel things when you do that, and you can do it at times, and you don't feel anything. There are times that you feel something about your guilt. There's other times that you don't. It's not just a bad feeling. Shame may or may not follow. So some have shame, some don't. Adam and Eve changed from their state of innocence to a state of guilt when they disobeyed and were expelled from the presence of God. They were in a state of innocence and when they went into a state of guilt from their disobedience, it was a game changer. It changed how they related to each other. It changed how they related to God and it changed it immediately. Not over time, immediately. Adam and Eve experienced shame associated with their guilty state. Adam and Eve tried to cover their guilty state in an attempt to deal with the shame. So immediately there was this sense of exposure And they sowed fig leaves and tried to tried to cover. And God held Adam and Eve accountable. As the offspring of Adam, we're all guilty by nature and by our own actions for falling short of the glory of God. That's what you see in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. That's in the little parenthesis there. It tells us what our real problem is. The real problem is not a personality issue, the real problem is not your mom and dad, that, that immediate set of parents that you have they shaping influences there, no doubt. Propensities, no doubt. Your biggest problem is that you're a son or daughter of Adam. Because Romans 5.12 says, When Adam sinned, all sinned. And thus death spread to all men. So you're born with a sin nature. That's something distinctly different than what our world goes with. It was distinctly one of the things that stood out. I shared with you how I'd take Christian counselors out and interview them and buy their lunch and try to figure out. I wanted to use some other people. I wasn't so silly as to think I'm the only one that can counsel anybody in my church. Especially when I was answering the phone, hello, Grace Fellowship, playing my guitar for the worship team, which was me, and preaching. I thought, I need to get some help. But I kid you not, when I would ask, what is the nature of human beings from birth? The number one answer I heard from people who have praying hands and doves with a little leaf in their mouth in the Yellow Pages was good. They're good. They're good. Now, where did they get that? Did they get that from the Bible? They absolutely did not. They got it from psychology. We went through those different philosophies. You know, shaping influences of the psychology. That's where people begin to promote this. Oh, it's society's problem, it's other people's problem. They're good. They're good. They're good and they become bad. You're not good and become bad. You're bad and start to prove it the older you get. Right? Who was I with just the other day? I wish I could remember. There's someone that has a new baby. No, no. It might have been you in a small group. Yes, it was. David's in my small group. And he shared about how how it is. And I have five kids too. I remember it too. That one of his sons, so young, can't talk, can't walk. And you watch them on the little changing table, rear up, arch their backs, and just wail. Not, I'm hurt. I've got a rash. I'm hungry. There's a difference. And you see, if I could... I would rule the world and I would take you out right now, man, woman, because you're not doing what I want right now. You just see it in their eyes and their little buttocks moving and they're arched and just thrashing like, oh, I want what I want. Ah. That's why I always say little vipers and diapers. That's what you have right there. These are not, so early on, I was always a big fan of early on you got to cross them, cross them. Early on, help them know, no, no, little man, <laughs> I rule right here. You, you will not win, and, and you're doing them a favor. You're doing them a favor. You're getting them ready for real life. That's a whole other workshop. <laughs> People turn to a variety of inadequate coverings for their shame and their guilt. The Bible references this in many ways. Isaiah 59 talks about their webs will not become clothing, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity and an act of violence is in their hands. But people, by nature, since we're sinners, do not want to turn to God for the solution. Because here's the deal. God has the only solution, right? What has to happen first? You have to see yourself and acknowledge yourself as truly as bad as he says you are. And that's what they can't stomach. So until you own that you are a sinner, you're not a candidate for the solution of the gospel. Because it's all based on mercy and grace. But most human beings, by their sin nature, think they only need a booster shot. They need tweaked. They just need an upgrade. They need a little help. And so this whole notion that you are a sinner in desperate need of a savior... is quite offensive to them. I'll never forget... uh, we didn't even have a building... and I I did an outdoor wedding... and I was standing in a little gazebo... because it started just pouring down rain... and I did what I always did. I wasn't thinking anything about it... but I probably used the word sinner... I don't know... 50 times... which I found very healthy at a wedding... just to remind everybody... because I always say things like... you look great today... and you look great... but listen... These are two sinners that are about to come under the same roof. And you're going to sin against each other in ways that you're unaware of. You're clueless in ways that you do know. Woo, buckle up. Because it's a great chance to introduce the gospel and say, what's the great hope for Bob and Sally here today? It's not that I think they have great families. It's not because they're so wonderful, though I like both of you. It's the gospel. And they're going to have to turn to the gospel. And they're going to have to be willing to forgive each other. Well unbeknownst to me, the guy that was in the wedding, the groom said, oh my goodness, he saw me the next week and he said, my brother-in-law, see lots of people come to these things. That's why I talk that way. So I can share the gospel and lift up Christ, but they don't, like. he said, my brother-in-law said, oh my goodness, if he, if he had used that word sinner one more time, I was going on to the gazebo and just gonna take him out. And I said, bring it, bring it. This, this pastor that says sinner goes to the gym too. Yeah, that's just some wimpy pastor that sits all day, huh? Yeah, that's why I go to the gym to get ready for things after weddings. When you've when you said the word sinner a lot, you better be ready because they're kind of come after you. So I don't have the double knit suit and the big belly because I want to be able to say sinner a lot. God still holds us accountable. Believe it or not, I pray every weekend that I'll stay on my notes. And my wife always says, Honey, everything I've ever asked for forgiveness for at our church was off note. Kid you not. I don't don't need to ask for forgiveness for any of that, do I? No, good, we're good. God still holds us accountable. I love Romans 3.19, where it says that every mouth may be stopped. And all the world become guilty before God. And you might think that's a horrible verse. It's not a horrible verse. God is so good that he knows every mouth needs to stop and you need to actually see yourself as guilty before God so that you would want a savior. That's that's step 1. God has instilled us with a sense of guilt. I touched on it already in Romans 2. It says the law is written on our hearts. Look at this. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts? Their conscience, he's not talking about believers, folks. He's talking about human beings. This is Romans chapter 2. This is not, this is not after you're saved. This is you're a human being instead of an aardvark, eater, golden retriever, houseplant. This is what's going on with you. They show the work of the law written in their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness in between themselves, their thoughts accusing or excusing them. This right here, I really do believe is the explanation for so many of the industries in our land that are thriving. You say, what are you talking about, Brad? Alcohol in moderation, not a sin. Abuse of alcohol, what so often is going on? I'm trying to find something that will numb me so that I don't have to hear the voice of my own conscience or heart. Abusing prescription drugs, uh, excessive abuse of entertainment and little computer games, right? I could go on. These are ways to try to escape... What Romans 2.15 is talking about. I don't want to hear. Even. I know this is going to. Generationally. Just maybe be offensive. But. I wonder sometimes about the generation. That I have to have a headset on. With something. Resonating and ricocheting around in my head. Constantly. I can't just think. What's going on? What's wrong with just thinking? Do you not have any happy thoughts? Is there no peace? It's like. Often people do not want. Quiet. Because in the quiet, their conscience speaks, and you can hear it, and they don't want to hear it. Let's talk about that. What, What about the place of the conscience? Well, you don't have to become a Christian to get a conscience. You have one because you're created in the image of God. But the biblically functioning conscience, here's how it works. It works in tandem with God's Word and God's Spirit. So when you become a Christian and you're born again oh my goodness, things just go up a notch as far as the capacity that you have to have a well-functioning conscience that can guide you clearly. So then, once you're a believer, until you're a Christian, God's word doesn't even make sense. And so I don't, I don't berate people when they'll say to me, I get nothing out of it. I get nothing out of it. I don't understand. And that's why I'll ca- ca- caution people when they say they're a believer and I'm trying to get them to read God's word. If I keep hearing, I get nothing out of it. I get nothing out of it. That's not a good sign. Don't hear me saying immediately I understand the wheel within the wheel in Ezekiel. I'm reading through the Bible this year, and that was just this week. And I'm just like, oh, my word. The wheel within the wheel, and when he moves, it moves, and one's a lion, and one's a... Yeah, there's some hard places. But I'm talking about in general... When someone just consistently says, because like this young man, 23, just got saved October 16th on the floor of a jail. He's sitting there saying, I opened to Acts chapter seven and he's telling me everything he understood there and how it applied to his life. and that It was a sermon from Stephen right before he got killed. Sometimes I'm trying to help people. And how could you make application to your life? I don't know. He knew. He said, then I opened to Proverbs 23 and oh, I'm sure if he went to Daniel and Ezekiel, he'd say, What? But early on, he's already like, he gets some of it. He's alive. And his conscience now works in tandem with God's word and God's spirit, because Jesus said, oh no, 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 don't keep saying you wish I would stay, you wish I would stay, unless I go away, the helper can't come, this is better. If you're a believer, the Holy Spirit, spirit of the living Jesus, risen from the dead, lives in you, and he said he would bring to remembrance his word, he would give you understanding on his word, he can convict you by his word, encourage you by his word, guide you by his word. God's word and God's spirit then begin to work in tandem with your conscience. Oh, good day. Good day. Sometimes it's painful. Very painful day. But good day. So why do some not feel shame? Why do you run into people that don't feel shame? And even as you read the paper or watch, you know, certain television kind of programs, like my wife is like loaded up on 48 hours and snapped and all these things and... She loves it. And, and sometimes I can't even record a football game because there's so many of them piled up. One of the worst moments we've had, th- this was last football season, so we made some adjustments. It was like since I'm, you know, we got three services, I don't get home to like two, kickoff, kickoffs at one, right? So I DVR these things, and then I just wait because I'm exhausted. I want to eat. I want to just chill out. And then like 4.30, thirty, we'll watch. We all got down there, my older children and their their significant others. We got all our snacks and... And the screen just says something really sad. Like, I know the word full was mentioned. That's all I know. The game was not recorded because there were like a gazillion snapped in 48 hours. And it was just like, you are kidding me. How did I even go there? But, oh, oh, and in these shows, I watch them every now and then. But after you watch two of them, it's like, it's the same every time. She killed him, she killed her husband. Different state, different circumstance, same deal. How many of these do I need to watch? Like, feel like my brain's going to mush. It's like, okay, yes, we know how this is going to end, and it's always antifreeze because you can't taste that. Why don't they fix that? I don't know, because there'd be no more shows as soon as they fix that. It's always antifreeze that he's been giving her, and she's felt bad for a long time. Now she's dead. I could write these things, and I've only seen two episodes. (laughs) You think, how do people do these things and not feel bad? You can't have people that start to feel no shame. There's a couple, couple reasons for this. One, it just might be an untrained conscience. Timothy does tell us, I mean, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. So you could have an untrained conscience you just didn't even know that's wrong. You could have a seared conscience. We already touched on that. You've been so rebellious, you've pushed so hard, you've continued to go down that path, even when God tried to convict you and restrain you, that his conviction just got quieter and quieter and quieter and quieter until it was just... And then read Romans chapter 1, it's a scary chapter, where three times God says, and so he, do you know what the phrase is? Turned them over, or depending on your version, gave them up. God will reach a point where, and and even then it's a merciful thing, folks. He can give you up so that you can just fully go after what you think you want and find how horrible it is so that you'll cry out for help. Instead of push, 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 push. And so he gave them up could be a seared conscience. The Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron. How about this? Have you run into this? If you start to do any counseling at close range or discipleship, whatever you choose to call it, you're going to run into this. People who feel shame who shouldn't. What's that about? An overly heightened conscience. Do you understand that? Often it's associated, I tell you, every time I run into it, it's very often, high percentage associated with perfectionism, which, by the way, is really a very high opinion of self, and so it's rooted where? Pride. Pride. I must be seen as perfect. I'm trying to be perfect. I don't ever want to be ill-thought-of. So they feel bad about things that even they shouldn't. To weak conscience. In Romans chapter 14, Paul gives us an entire chapter trying to explain this. And the big fight in their day was food that had been offered to idols. Physical idols. You know, here's a metal idol or wood. And so after it had been offered to idols, whoa. They found out the idols don't eat the food. It still just sits there. And if you'll scoop it up in a timely way, you can still sell that puppy. And so they were selling meat that had been offered to idols at half price. And some Christians were like. I know the one true living God. Through his son Jesus Christ. I was a pagan. Now I'm not. I know there's one God. These aren't gods. Half off meat. Let's cook out. Have the whole family over honey. And other Christians were like. What? You. You're eating meat. That was offered to idols. How could you? And they're just like. Get a grip. We're having meat. What's wrong with you? Grow up. Get your big boy pants on. So. So. Big fight. Well, Paul tells us in that chapter. So that's not our deal today. But do we have deals today? Oh, yeah. So be very careful. The whole chapter, at no point does he say, you who are strong and believe you have the freedom to do something and that it's not a sin, teach those weaker ones how they should do it also. Eh, it doesn't say that. It says, if for you it's a sin... And in your conscience, you don't have a clear conscience to do it. Don't. Don't. And so, the, so he actually ends up saying, You who don't think you can, don't judge those who do. So some of you might be here. Let me give you an example that's more relevant to right today in Christianity drinking, right? Does the Bible teach it's a sin to drink? No. But those who have chosen not to often grab all kinds of other biblical principles and try to build an airtight case that they think, here's why you still shouldn't. But the Bible does not say you can't drink. But I understand there's some Christians who, in their family, it's horrible. What they've seen is horrible. For them, they were already a pagan that that was an area that they abused. And now, oh, good call if you say, I shouldn't. And so those that do shouldn't say, come on. Have a beer with me. And those who don't shouldn't judge others and say, you must not even love Jesus. There's no way you love him as much as I do with a beer in your hand. No way. And I'm like, yes way. Yes. But we're to love each other and prefer each other. That's what the chapter says. Don't judge. It says those that do don't condemn, don't despise, don't look down on them and say, oh, my goodness. Weak conscience could be what's going on. What's the solution for guilt? Ah, here's where it gets glorious regarding what we have to offer. It's the gospel. Is the solution for guilt. God alone is God's provision in the gospel. That's why when we're dealing with guilt and shame and repentance and these issues, it's a great joy as a counselor because we're right on the main thing. This is not on the edge. We're right at the hub and heart of Christianity because it's all about the gospel. If someone can understand, and it is very hard sometimes for people to understand, I truly do believe that salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing is very hard for the human being to understand. I've shared with our church family that when you talk that way, which I do believe you're talking just like the Bible talks, it sounds like a foreign language to some people. It can't be that way. There's got to be something I do. There's got to be something I bring to the table. There's got to be something that's dependent on me that I have to do and I earn it. It can't be free grace. But it is. God alone can justify us and remove the guilt and shame. God's justice requires the life, the lifeblood of the guilty. So, what we saw all through the Old Testament over and over and over is that blood must be shed. He said, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. So, we've got the whole Old Testament that is a bloody era in history, that it just it, it, it reminded us this is not an easy deal. God doesn't just turn his, turn his, blink his eyes and say, oh, whatever, it was costly all the way leading up until, and it never truly covered. It never truly took away our sin or our guilt, but just was temporary, 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 temporary. That's why I'm fond of saying, the, old, the whole Old Testament is a big, big finger point, pointing forward, saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. Until then, there's this. Until then, there's this. Then the whole New Testament is really a big pay, finger pointing back to the cross, the, the Gospels and, and Calvary are the centerpiece of the Bible. And the New Testament points back and constantly explains to us what happened and how we should live now. That's why you got 14 letters from Paul. And almost every letter he doesn't jump in and start saying, Now Phoebe and Synctity that aren't getting along there in Philippi, tell them to get along. Now, such and such about all kinds of issues he addresses. But he almost always takes one or two chapters to revisit and lift up what happened on the cross. What did God do? What did Jesus do that you could have never done for yourself? There And then there will be a word like, therefore, now, walk in a manner that is fitting. There will be a turning point where he says, now start to do, but that's the centerpiece, the gospel. Jesus Christ, his perfect obedience that kept the law and satisfied God's demands And his shed blood that paid the price, the penalty for sin, so that we could be forgiven. More than just forgiven. More than just have our sins washed away. But have his righteousness applied to our account. That's the full picture of justification. So Christ is the superior guilt offering. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw him coming, said, behold the Lamb of God, who doesn't just cover it, who takes away the sins of the world. Now the Holy Spirit is the agent for humanity's conviction. So the Holy Spirit's at work in our world convicting people, yay, and working through believers. The Word of God is the tool the Holy Spirit uses for humanity's conviction. That's why, listen to me. If you struggle with this at all, and I I find that sometimes Christians do, there's a hesitancy to use God's word and to quote it or to share it with someone until they're a Christian. I'll hear people say, but they don't believe the Bible is the word of God. And and they don't believe it's, "I, I don't care. It's powerful. It is powerful. Quote it anyway. Don't just Use your words. Use God. There's nowhere in the Bible does it say your words are powerful. It says in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of joints and marrow and spirit and soul and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart of man. Here's what I've learned. People will stand there and look objective. Obje- they'll look like this isn't sinking in at all. And later, and later... God's spirit can take that word and begin to just nettle them and begin to, his word is powerful. Use it. Encourage people to read it. I encourage people to read Have you read the Bible? When people are saying, ah, have you read? Well, no. Read the New Testament. Read the gospel. See who Jesus really is. I challenge people. I'm convinced. Think, I don't think it's just me as a pastor. Have you not heard dozens and dozens and dozens Of testimonies from people who said, I started to read the Bible. And yes, there's plenty that say, and I didn't understand it at all. But think of how many say, and oh my goodness, all of a sudden, this is powerful. This is powerful long after your sad argument has ended. And you think, oh, I didn't do very good. The believer can rest confidently against Satan's accusations of condemnation. Because of Christ and what he's done for us. So, so what about mankind's appropriation of God's provision? Repentance. So here's how you get what God is offering. Repentance. I turn from my sins to this free offer of the gospel by faith. Mankind's appropriation of repentance. But watch out. Almost always when there's something life changing that God offers, our enemy has substitutes that look an awful lot like it, but not quite. Not quite. So I think he's a big fan of not coming directly against the things of God because we would recognize that. Just take it and turn it just a little and say, yeah, but there's some counterfeits to true repentance. I got these from Josh Harris in a message I was listening to about worldliness. I just took a few of them because I thought it was really good. He talks about the Salvation Army guy with the bell response. In other words, what he's saying is you do just enough to make a little noise and to help people around you think you just did something, but it's not true repentance. So you're heading towards the Walmart door. There's the person with the red kettle ringing the bell. And not that you or I would ever think this way. But some people, oh, my goodness, I can't get past them. What can I give? the littlest I can give that makes the most noise and can just, I don't really have a heart that says, I want to give. You can repent that way. And I find most often when I'm sitting with people that there's been a big mess and we're talking about repentance and they're saying they repent, Ooh, ask some questions. Often they're just telling you enough to cause everyone to back off and settle down. True, genuine repentance is when someone starts telling you more than you knew. That's always a good sign. When you feel like you're pulling teeth and it's only as new information gets exposed that they, well, yeah, there was that also. Mm, not a good sign. There's the aw shucks response or humor where people are being convicted and they try to joke about it, make light of it. Laugh about it and get other people to laugh about it just to deflect. The Oprah Winfrey response. I know she's not on TV anymore, but by that I just mean... The afternoon talk shows. Here's what I mean by that. Confess everything. Publicly, if you can, on TV. Change nothing. See, we're in a new day. Old school with my grandfather and Vicky's grandfather. Nobody, nobody talked about the problems. Nobody said nothing. How you doing? Fine. No, you're going bankrupt and you have cancer. Still fine. Fine. That day is over. We're living in a day where it's very, very, very appropriate and people, they'll, they'll confess all kinds of stuff. But folks, God's word doesn't say confession alone equals repentance. Proverbs 28, 13. I don't know if it's in your notes or not, but write it down. Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses... And anybody know the next word? Forsakes it, we'll find mercy. It's confession, and okay, now I've confessed. But let's let's begin to forsake it. Let's walk together to figure out why. How did you ever end up there? What are you wanting? What are you believing? What are you prizing? What are you worshiping? What are your bad habits? How are you connecting the dots wrong? Where have you gotten snared? We need to help you so you won't be just right back there again. And if they push back and they're not interested, and sometimes that's the case, they just want to confess it. And I'll hear it in the session. They'll say something like, well, I confessed to God and I've confessed to her. Why do we have to keep talking about it? Well, because you were lying and deceiving her for 12 years and have committed adultery with five different people And so, hello, she doesn't trust you yet. And we need to figure out how in the world you were living like that. And so this is going to take some time. We're going to walk some more. And so I'll tell them, counseling now. Because often they've confessed before we even started, right? That's how we got in counseling. It's all come out. He cried or she cried and said, please forgive me. I don't want to lose you. The spouse is willing to forgive, praise God. And I get them. Oh my goodness, this is the beginning, not the end. I don't sit there and say, well, hallelujah, there you go. Let me pray a prayer and be warm, be filled. and go. Whew. Whosoever confesses and, say it, forsakes it. So I'm going to stay with this person to help them build up some understanding that that's not happening. And that's the forsaking part. And it takes time, some time. Jim Elliff has an excellent website. There's the website address for you. All his stuff is free. Oh, There's a number of his things that I use in counseling. Just good stuff. Go there and check it out. I got all kinds of stuff from him that I use with people and that I use for my own soul. But one of them is this little pamphlet he has called The Unrepenting Repenter. Where he talks about, it's either 9 or 12 deals that are not full repentance. It looks like repentance and you might be doing it thinking it's repentance but it's not. I use it a lot. Let's get a definition of repentance. It's a change of mind and heart that's based upon God's word. It's a change of mind. The word in the Greek is metanoia. Meta is change. Noia is taken from nous, mind. A change of mind that leads to a change in direction and life. It's not just new thinking. Oh, well, I agree. That's wrong. That was bad. Repentance is a change of ...of mind that leads to a change of direction in life. That's repentance. The Old Testament concept is from the Hebrew word shuv, to turn. So it's more than just lip service. I'm still going the same way I was going, but I'm saying, yeah, you're right, that was bad. If you don't change direction, that's not repentance. And there it is, metanoia. To change one's mind, to be converted, to repent... What about some applications of this? Well, regarding justification or salvation, it's the personal turning towards God's provision in Christ, the gospel. That's salvation or justification. Tasting this for the first time, coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not religion. It's a relationship. And when someone lives in you, you've got a power that you didn't have before. That's why if I'm sitting with someone and they keep using the verb, I can't. I hear you, but I can't. I can't, I can't, I can't. Session after session, I can't, I can't. And I'm showing them from God's word what he calls us to do. After a while, I'll say, you know what? You're either using the wrong verb, because sometimes Christians will, right? They're saying they can't. What they, what they should be saying is, oh my goodness, that would be hard. Is that fair? Would it be okay to say, that would be hard? I've never done that before. That's not a habit I have. Yes, 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 yes. I can't. Mm. And I'll say, either you're using the wrong verb or you're not born again. Sometimes people don't like that because they're like, oh, I prayed the prayer, asked Jesus into my heart, threw a stick in the fire. I know I'm." If you got no power, my friend, and no – app, I can't get them to read God's word. They have no appetite. They don't want to be around the people of God. They won't get in a small group. Hello, after a while, it's okay to put a big question mark above your conversion and say, why do we think you're saved? Where is any sense of, not perfection, but an appetite for the things of God, a desire to be around the people of God, an ability and understanding to tap into a power that's greater than your own. That's what it means to be a Christian. Regarding sanctification, it's the daily application of the gospel. When you get saved, everything's not just fixed. You've still got this body of sin. You've got old habits. You've got wrong thinking. And so... Now there's the process of sanctification, which, by the way, happens best, I think, at close range. So that's why we're big fans here of, yes, we have a big church, and there's a big room downstairs, and I preach three times. But we've got people in small groups. I want people at close range with other believers. Then we've got counseling for when someone's so stuck, that small group isn't enough. Because you don't want to turn a small group in front of 16 people into one-on-one counseling in front of everybody. So then we've got... Biblical counseling. And this is how we change and grow. I loved it. Uh, This past Thursday night in our small group is a new believer, a young lady. And you always hope that somebody else thinks what you think as a pastor. You know, I'm like, oh, I love small group. This is so good. This is so different than Sunday. And I didn't have it growing up in the church. And right in the middle of our small group, we hadn't met for two weeks because I went camping and something else. I forget what. And she says, oh, in front of everybody. This is so good. Being together like this, she said, I love Sunday. Don't get me wrong. I love Sunday. But this is so, and she said, different. And I need this desperately. She said, for like two weeks, I have felt like there's a wedge between me and God. I've missed being together with God's people, hearing your prayers, seeing how I can pray for you. And then she said, she said something like, it's like, it's like the fullness of the spirit. When I'm in small group here. Because people hear that you're not the only one struggling. And you get encouragement from believers at close range. This is how we change and grow. So if you come to know Christ and then you just decide it's going to be me and Jesus and great sermons on my iPod. Let me know how that turns out for you. Because I think God called us to come together. Because there's a reason. I'm going to talk about it tomorrow in the message here at our church. From 1 Peter 4.10 where it says, Every believer is a steward of the manifold grace of God. God's grace is flowing through every... And the word manifold is a word in the Greek that means multicolored. It's going to look different through you than through you, than through you, than through you, but grace is flowing through every believer. Even that most difficult believer. You think, really? Grace through her? Mm-hmm. Yep. She knows Jesus. It's, 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 it's a darker color, but it's, it's there. <laughs> Hey, different flavors for different people, right? It's going to minister to somebody somewhere if it's not you. It's the daily changing of the mind and turning in regard to all the implications of the gospel on a believer's walk. We don't understand everything we need to understand, so you begin to walk by God's grace, and he renews your mind, and he he teaches you and grows you and helps you. Two of my very favorite little books that are like devotionals is, is the gospel primer that... Oh, Milton Vincent does a great job of applying the gospel to all kinds of areas of your life. How should the gospel make a difference? How should the gospel make a difference? Ooh, it's a little book to read just a little bit every day. And then Elise Fitzpatrick has another book called Comforts from the Cross that are short devotions. Also, how should the cross and the gospel make a difference in your everyday life? Two great resources. Listen to what Milton Vincent says. Here's a quote regarding guilt. Very insightful. He says, as long as I'm stricken with the guilt of my sins, we make the mistake of thinking if I still feel really bad about it, that's probably the best condition to be in because then I won't do it. Not true. Not true. Christians who really don't understand, I'm forgiven, I can get up, confess, ask for forgiveness, begin to move in a direction of forsaking it, and I don't have to keep beating myself up, actually do better. As long as I'm stricken with the guilt of my sins, I will be captive to them and will often find myself self-recommitting the very sins about which I feel most guilty. The devil is well aware of this. He knows that if he can keep me tormented by sin's guilt... He can dominate me with sin's power. The gospel, however, stays sin at this root point and thereby nullifies sin's power over me. The forgiveness of God made known to me through the gospel liberates me from sin's power because it liberates me from sin's guilt. And preaching such forgiveness to myself is a practical way of putting the gospel into operation as a nullifier of sin's power in my life. Repentance is fueled by the indwelling spirit of God in the believer. And the, the results of true repentance. Look for confession. The word confession in the New Testament is simply homo legeo. Homo means same. Ligeo is from logos, word, same word. You're saying the same thing God says about what you did. No more excuses. No more airbrushing it. No more redefining it. Confession is homo legeo. God calls it sin. I'm calling it Sin. Now we're on the same page. The mouth speaks out of that which the heart is filled. Look for precise language that an individual agrees with God about his guilt. Not, here's what you don't want to hear from somebody. I didn't mean to say or do that. I'm tired and I'm not myself. That's not a great confession. Here's the real deal. Listen to me. And it's painful to acknowledge it's true about me as much as you. When your allergies are killing you, when you did not sleep well... When you, you just fill in the blank. What comes out of you then, that is who you really are. Does that make sense? Often when I've had enough sleep and my allergy meds are working, I can control myself. It's when you're on that edge and it's like, oops, that came out. Don't say, oh, that's not really me. Please understand. No, that was you. That was you. Forgive me for reacting to your venom. That's not good. You know? (laughs) Instead, you want to hear, I was wrong and sinned against you when I. That's how Vicki and I practice this with each other. I was wrong and I sinned against you when I cut you off, didn't let you finish your sentence or whatever, assumed that I knew what you were, whatever it is. Will you please forgive me? Own it. Own it. And even if you think, okay, I'm going to take a pause here and surely you will confess back, that would be so sweet. Even if they don't. Vicki's got this pastor she loves to listen to. And uh, when she walks, it's not me. And uh, she said, he gave, and he's good. He's really good. He gave a story about how he really wanted to tell his wife some things that he thought she was doing wrong. And so when they went out to dinner, he he thought, hey, I'm going to say, is there anything you've been wanting to tell me about me that you'd like me to know? And, and then when, I, when, when she does that, and there won't be hardly anything there, then I'll. So he did that. And she's like, oh, yes. And she just. Went on and on and on and on, and he said, and then when she finished, she just went back to eating her spaghetti. She didn't say, and what about you? Anything he was like, Oh my goodness. That's you don't want to do that. That you're going saying, I'll do this so that they'll it's just I was wrong. I sinned again. You own your part of it, whether they say anything on their end or not. Confessional first be to God and then to appropriate persons in which a relationship has been broken. Look for godly sorrow as opposed to worldly sorrow. Big difference in 2 Corinthians 7 helps us there. I've got a worksheet on my website where I break it down that I use with people. You can get it and download it if you go to bradbigney.com. Not Grace Fellowship's website, mine. You'll find that there. That's a great passage to use. Look for growth and change, rejoicing in the freedom of forgiveness, using freedom to pursue holiness And look for restitution when it's possible. You know it's a good sign when someone goes back. Like this young man I was listening to. I was, oh, I knew I was listening to genuine repentance. When he said, when early 20-year-olds say anything like this. I've thought my parents were stupid. I've told them they were stupid. And oh my goodness, I've gone back to them and said, please forgive me. And they've loved me anyway. And I was like, oh my goodness, we've got real repentance here. He went back. No one had to tell him. Hey, go tell your parents you're sorry. Ask for forgiveness for saying they're so stupid. Restitution is not a requirement of the law. Simply a requirement of the law, but a manifestation of love. You want to make things right with those that you've sinned against. Sometimes it's impossible if the person you can't find them or they're dead. But all of us are sinners. Sinners who have a past, but it's God's grace that makes all the difference in the present.